so grateful that in the midst of our sin and depravity, when we were lost and dead in our sins, without hope and without God in this world, you thought of us and you came up with the perfect plan to reconcile us with yourself. Thank you that we can rest in Jesus to be free, to be brought back to life, to get to know you and to walk with you for the rest of our days into eternity. Be with us as we go into your word. Holy Spirit, fill us, fill me, help us be touched, be encouraged, be challenged by your word and be transformed to be more and more like Jesus. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite heroes of the faith outside of Scripture was a man named John Newton. You might know John Newton as the one who wrote the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. What you might not know about him is that he had a dark and sinful part of his life from which God saved him so graciously. When Newton was on his deathbed, one of the last things he said was, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I'll read to you a few words from one of his biographies so you get a sense of how far he had fallen and how much God had saved him. It says, Pressed into service in the Royal Navy, this is in England, John Newton attempted desertion, was beaten senseless, and dismissed for insubordination. Then turned to a career trafficking in slaves. Notorious for cursing and blasphemy, even among his fellow degenerates, Newton served on a slave ship during the darkest and cruelest days of transatlantic slavery finally working his way up to captain. And it was while in the depths of such sin that God graciously changed Newton's heart, he, who then renounced his sinful life and he turned to Christ, eventually becoming a powerful preacher of the gospel and a leader in the movement to abolish slavery. While happy endings like in Newton's life are so good to hear about, I want us to consider how he probably felt when he was at the lowest of the low, when he had reached rock bottom in his sin and in his misery and hopelessness. Maybe you've been in a dark place in your life like this before, and God worked in you at that time to bring you to himself, just like he did with Newton Maybe you're in a bad place right now and you're here to find comfort and God's love. Or maybe you're a believer in Jesus Christ and sometimes the guilt that you feel for your sin weighs on you, weighs down on you more and more and you just don't find yourself able to, to shake it off. The question we want to look at this morning is, what are we supposed to do when we're feeling down like this? 
What will help us come out of the sin and misery that we are in? This morning, I'm starting a sermon series that I'll be preaching whenever I'm up, and we'll be looking at the parables of Jesus. The plan is to look at about nine of Jesus' parables throughout this year. And our parable for today is the very beloved one that is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, in which we, we will hear about God's grace and love to help us through our lowest moments, whether we've been, been through them already or they are still to come, our deepest failures, our deepest miseries. It might be easy to dismiss the power of this parable if we've heard it a lot, if we've heard it too many times, or if we think that it's only for those who are deep in sin or only for unbelievers. But I'd like to argue that we all desperately need to hear of God's love and grace no matter what our spiritual state is currently because we all still sin and we all still deal with the guilt whether great or small. God's grace and love is not only for unbelievers, but for believers too. And so the parable of the prodigal son is for all of us. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 15 to quickly see the context and then to jump into our parable. Luke chapter 15. Please open your Bibles there with me. Luke chapter 15. You can swipe on your phones or on your tablets or open your Bibles physically. And this is to test you if you're actually doing it. The context is not up there that I'm going to read from. So Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 first, which is the key to the context here. And in verses 1 and 2, we find that sinners are turning to Christ But the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling about Jesus' love for them. Let me read it to you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. This is right after he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Like, how dare he? And so Jesus begins telling some parables, three of them, actually. First, the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to find the one lost sheep. And concludes, Jesus concludes in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Kind of hinting at the Pharisees there at the end. Then comes the parable of the lost coin where a woman rejoices at finding her lost coin and Jesus concludes in verse 10 saying, just so there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's right after this that we find the parable of the prodigal son. Keeping in mind this really important context of sinners coming to Jesus, the Pharisees complaining And the shepherd and the woman in the previous parables rejoicing. Let's read the first half of our parable starting in verse 11. Please follow along as I read. And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Imagine the lows that he was feeling. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Just picture that scene. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Beloved, no matter how far we have fallen, God will joyfully accept us when we turn to Him. No matter how many our sins, or how persistent, or how severe, God is delighted to accept us when we come to Him. And that is exactly what we find in this parable. We can safely assume that the Father represents God and the sinful Son represents sinners. In this immediate context, the Son specifically represents the tax collectors and the sinners who were coming to hear Jesus during His earthly ministry. But ultimately, the Son represents all sinners of all time, including us. And we can find that we have a lot in common if we think about how far we've fallen short of God's perfect standards, how far we've fallen in our sins. This young man falls deep into sin and misery. And I want us to take a few minutes to think through the text carefully to reflect on just how deep into sin and misery he falls so that we can appreciate just how much God saves sinners and how much he brings us through and how much he loves us. The young man starts off by dishonoring, insulting his father, 
when he asks for his inheritance ahead of time. Obviously, the normal and acceptable thing to do would have been to wait for his father's death. Some say that he, he treated his father as dead already when he did this. At the very least, we can say that he cared more about the money than about his dad. He's not interested in sticking around to help his father as his dad gets older. Nor is he interested in hearing his father's advice or direction in life. He wants to be completely apart from his father. And so he rejects his family and he goes off to a far country. As far as he can go, it sounds like. And once there, he lives recklessly the text says, and he wastes all of his money. I think the implication is that this was not just financial recklessness. It it was moral recklessness too, ungodliness. It sounds like he, he lived a life of sin and used up all the money on ungodly passions. Apparently there's a Middle Eastern caricature of younger brothers being lazy, irresponsible, and greedy. Don't tell my younger brother. This young man seemed to fit this caricature well. Eventually, his foolish choices catch up to him, don't they? He spends his last penny, and then a severe famine hits the land. Things get worse. This young man's in a bad place, unable to even afford his necessities. He probably never planned to work in the first place. Maybe he was hoping to live off of his father's money. But now he's forced to find a job. And what job? He's forced to take a job feeding pigs, of all things. Of course, we know that pigs were considered unclean for Jews, and feeding pigs would be such a dishonorable thing for this Jewish man, even though he had left his heritage behind him. He still grew up thinking this way. The Jewish Talmud says, Cursed is the man who raises swine. The worst part of it all is that even after degrading himself to take a job feeding pigs, he's still starving, longing to eat the food that the pigs were given and not being able to eat it. No one wants to help him out. It seems like he must have been so alone. This young man hits rock bottom. He's at his wit's end. What would he do? He could have just lived on in hopelessness, in sin until he got sick or died of hunger or something worse maybe. But Jesus says that he comes to himself and finally realizes how wrong he's been in abandoning his father and his family. The young man admits his sin and he decides to return to his father in broken, humble repentance. He begins to realize how foolish he's been when he remembers that even his father's servants have more to eat than he does. He recognizes that he has sinned against both God and his father. Sometimes the the miseries that come with sin give us a good kick to get us going, to help us remember, to help us realize how foolish we've been, how, how wrong we've been. He recognizes he's, that he sinned between, uh, against God and his father, between God and, both God and man. After all, the commandment to honor father and mother comes from God, right? 
And so he plans to return home with no claims, no excuses. I think we can learn a few things from how he repents. This is a good model of repentance. He does not expect to be treated like a son again. It means he, this, this means he recognizes the seriousness of what he's done and he's not trying to justify his sin. It means he's ready to accept the consequences of his sinful choices. He throws himself at his dad's mercy, hoping to be received as a day laborer, which was even lower than a slave. A slave would at least be taken care of, would be kind of considered part of the family. The day laborer was hired one day at a time, like a temporary employee. Would his dad accept him back, even as a day laborer? Amazingly, we find that this dad does indeed accept his rebellious son. This father still loves his son deeply and receives him back with great joy. The tradition would have been to write him off, to cut him off forever. But this dad, he's different than what a normal dad would have done. Let's take a few moments here. I want us to reflect on how much grace this father lavishes on his son. Because it is exactly what our Heavenly Father does for sinners like us. Picture the scene while the son is still a long way off. This father feels compassion. He runs out to his rebellious son, hugs him and kisses him. All of this before the son even has a chance to say anything about how sorry he is and repentance. Notice what this might be hinting about God. He loves us sinners even before we have turned to Him, even before we've uttered a word of, I'm sorry, He loves us. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes, while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. The fact that this dad notices that his son is coming home, even while he's a long way off, shows that he has not forgotten about him. He has not written, written him off. He's, he's been actively waiting and looking in that direction for his son's return. By running out to his rebellious son, this father disregards all custom, all tradition. He doesn't care if he looks undignified in front of the other villagers because he is so eager to have his son back. The son begins to make his confession, but... His father is so eager to bless him that the son is unable to get the part about I'll be your servant even out. He, he can't even get to that part of his confession that he was planning to say. We can imagine that the young man was not dressed well, being in poverty and all. His dad seems to cut him off in the middle of his confession to order clothing for him. Not just any clothing. This father lavishes his grace on him by ordering the servants to bring the best robe and a ring for his hand and shoes for his feet. Of course, more than the niceness of dressing up well, all of this showed that this father was accepting him back into the family. The servants and slaves 
went barefoot. But the family members had shoes and sandals. The father doesn't stop there. He orders the servants to prepare the fattened calf for a celebration meal, something that was done only on major holidays and celebrations. This dad just could not help himself. He was so happy to have his son back. We can imagine tears of joy as he explains the reason for the celebration. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the young man, this young man, goes from the depths of sin and poverty and loneliness to the heights of grace and forgiveness and plenty and family love. Is it not a beautiful and powerful parable? It's like, I was thinking as I was preparing, it's like a, one of those really good worship songs that never gets old because it's that good and we'll be singing it decades from now. Like Amazing Grace. It should make us praise God from our hearts for the love that He's shown us undeserving sinners. It should make us floored by his love. One of the reasons it's such a wonderful parable is the love of God for people who don't deserve it. No matter how far we fall, God will joyfully accept us when we turn to him. Like the son who was lost in this parable, it doesn't matter how badly we've fallen. God will have us back. Maybe you're not a believer in Christ Jesus yet you might be wondering if you're worthy enough to belong to him to come to him even to pray to him you might be thinking that you have to clean up your life first before he'll accept you this parable tells us that he loves us even before we're clean and dressed in his righteousness he calls us to come to him The focus of today's parable is that God will receive anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. The rest of the Gospel of Luke goes on to elaborate on how a holy God, a holy and righteous God, a just God, is able to accept sinners like us by sending his own son to die in our place and for our sin so that our sin will no longer be counted against us because it's counted against His beloved Son. God calls you to come and to trust in His Son, no matter how far you've fallen. And He promises He will take you. Consider your status before God. Have you trusted in His Son? Has He forgiven you for your sins? I urge you, even today, to take this step of turning to Jesus and trusting in Him. And then talk to one of us so we can help you and walk with you through this process. Maybe you're already a believer in Christ Jesus, but you've fallen into some areas of sin that 
that you're ashamed even to mention to anybody. It could be gambling that's gotten out of control. It's become idolatry. It's made you not fulfill your responsibilities to your family, driven you deep into debt, kind of like the lost son who squandered everything in the parable. It could be adultery or homosexuality or any other kind of sexual sin that's hard to bring up to talk about. Maybe it has to do with drugs or alcohol addiction or other kinds of addictions. Whatever sin it is that is hard to even talk about, friend, your Heavenly Father loves you. Beloved, He calls you to come back to Him in repentance. For some of you, the sin that you're in might be public and humiliating. As a result, maybe people don't treat you well. Beloved, your Heavenly Father forgives you immediately and does not depend on popular opinion to form His judgments. He forgives you because of Jesus and the blood He shed. We'll talk about popular opinion more in a minute. For many of us, maybe our sin is not as dramatic or or blatant, but, but maybe it's persistent. Maybe it just we fall into it over and over again and that could be devastating too recently i've spoken to several brothers and sisters who have been anxious about their sinful behavior that they keep falling into over and over again and you could see it's weighing on them they feel like they're stuck in this pattern of sin confessing it and then falling right back into it over and over again Beloved, the reality is that in Christ we are free from this slavery and the Holy Spirit will break us free from these cycles of sin. We just have to rely on Him. But sometimes it takes time. He forgives us right away, but sometimes it takes time for us to stop doing it. Even as we're fighting it and wrestling with God's strength. In the meantime, maybe we feel the guilt of that sin that's taking time to throw off completely. We might wonder if God still loves us. And the answer from this parable is a resounding yes. God's love and grace is not just for believers. Excuse me, it's not just for unbelievers, but for believers too. We need His mercy, and He gives it to us freely in Christ. When we sin, Even if it's the 1,000th time that we've done the same thing, let us keep turning to Christ in faith and repentance. And by His blood shed for us, He will forgive us over and over and over again. His love really never runs out. The thing that might really help motivate us to turn to God is the joy and delight in which He receives us. If we felt like God was kind of coldly or bitterly accepting us, kind of cringing at our unholy presence, forcing himself to take us in because it's, quote, the right thing, that would make him more like a human. We might not feel very motivated to come to him. We've talked about the book Gentle and 
lowly. I, that's the thought that comes from that book to me as I'm saying this. But think about the love and grace that the father in this parable lavishes on his son. He doesn't need to force himself to do it. Instead, he can't wait to reinstate his son. And he does it without a second thought. He throws a party to celebrate. And he does it without, a, without even questioning it. Remembering the other parables, there is joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. The previous two parables that ended that way. There's joy in heaven. Maybe we see this kind of love often between human parents and children. And that could be a helpful analogy for us. I was thinking about my love for my kids. Uh, I, I feel like I have a better sense of God's love as I think about it, how much I love my children. I, I won't pretend that my four-year-old and my two-year-old have done anything as serious as the son in this parable. But I do get upset with them sometimes. And I might need to walk out of the room to cool down. But I literally miss them within minutes and can't wait to get back to them, to hug them and show my love for them. God's love is, of course, so much better than our imperfect human love. We can meditate on it day and night and it will be of such help to us in our walk with Him. So far, we've seen that no matter how far we fall, God will joyfully accept us when we turn to Him. But there was a problem in Jesus' time. A problem that still often persists today. In Jesus' ministry, the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus, praise God, but the religious people like the Pharisees were grumbling about it. They could not understand how Jesus would be okay with spending time with people they considered so terrible. In fact, they even seemed to use this as a reason for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah sent by God. How, how could the Messiah spend time with sinners? Sadly, we deal with the same temptation in our own hearts, if we'll admit it, in our own circles as well, in our own circles. Instead, we need to accept others who repent the way God does, with God's joy. Regardless of how far they've fallen, we need to receive them with the joy of Christ. That's the message we find in the second half of this parable. There is an older brother who represents the judgmental Pharisees. Please follow along as I read verses 25 through 32. Now this father's older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. 
Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We need to be more like the father in this parable and not like the older brother. We need to accept others who repent with God's joy. The older brother does not accept his brother back. He's too busy being self-centered and self-righteous. He becomes angry that his father would treat his reckless brother with such kindness. The father, once again, just like he did with his younger son, now shows his deep love, this time by taking the initiative to step out of the celebration, to step out of the party, and to come out, some think to condescend himself to leave the celebration, to come out to talk to his older son. The older one complains to his dad by comparing himself. It's never a good idea to compare ourselves. He compares himself to his younger brother. He expresses how he has slaved away for his father for all these years. Apparently, he's saying all of this resentfully, claiming that he never disobeyed his dad's commands. But his father never celebrated with him, not even giving him a young goat to party with his friends. He continues to complain, saying, but when my reckless and sinful younger brother shows up, you kill the fattened calf for him? How is that fair? In his mind, he's never done wrong and should be rewarded, not his reckless brother. He accuses his dad of rewarding bad behavior. Yet he has just now himself dishonored his dad by refusing to join the family celebration and insulting him in that culture by doing that. His dad lovingly acknowledges, it's amazing, he doesn't, his dad doesn't get defense, I would have gotten defensive. His dad lovingly acknowledges his older son and says, it's true, son, you have always been with me. And I have everything I own is at your disposal. In a sense, the goat is, is his to take whenever he wants. The goat that he was complaining about. Yet in strong words, the father says, it is only right to celebrate for the recovery of your lost brother. Literally, the, the Greek says, it is necessary to celebrate the return of your brother. This is a command in, in a sense, to us. With this ending to the parable, Jesus is sending a message. He's sending a message to the Pharisees. Stop grumbling at sinners turning to God. In fact, not only should you stop grumbling, but it is necessary that you join the celebration. And Jesus sends, sends the same message to us. Will we judge and look down on people who have lived a life of sin, and now are coming to Jesus. As one commentator put it, will we be the church of the elder brother or the church of the loving father? We must love and accept others who repent with God's joy. 
And it's easy to say this, but so much harder to do when feelings of self-centeredness and self-righteousness and comparing ourselves to others creep into our hearts. It might be helpful to consider some reasons why the Pharisees had trouble accepting repentant sinners so that we can avoid them ourselves. Perhaps they felt that godly people should distance themselves from ungodly people so that they won't be influenced, that they won't get corrupted. Of course, there's some aspect of truth to this. We don't want to be influenced by ungodly thinking, and we need to be careful. But when someone repents and turns to Christ, they are forgiven and accepted by God, and now they're wanting to live for Christ. Instead of being a bad influence on us, we are to be a good influence on them. And of course, we have to spend time with them to be able to do that. Maybe another reason why the Pharisees, a deeper reason really, did not accept the sinners was that they did not think that people should be welcomed until they cleaned up their lifestyle first. That they had to be holy and righteous. They had to work their way in somehow. The Pharisees probably felt that way because they themselves had worked so hard to be obedient and to gain acceptance before God. How would it be fair if they just accepted these people without making them work hard? Perhaps accepting sinners would make even their own hard work at obedience seem worthless. But does this thinking reflect the gospel in which Jesus pays for our sin and accepts us immediately because of the blood that he shed? No, if we wait for people to fully clean up their act before we show love, we would be inconsistent with the gospel of free grace available to all sinners, including ourselves. Who says we've cleaned up enough? We ourselves who are sinners would not be accepted either. When we remember that we're accepted by grace and not by our works, obedience should no longer be a burden that leads to comparing ourselves and that leads to resentment. Instead, obedience should flow out of joy and thankfulness to Christ for saving us already by His blood. When we are thinking rightly about the gospel in this way, we can be so much more joyful when others are accepted by the same grace that we were accepted by. We should never feel like it's unfair that we've worked so hard and they haven't. And that's because Christ is the one who has worked so hard and not us. This is a lot easier to talk about. It's a lot easier to preach about than to practice. Just consider how it might be hard to receive with joy someone who has left the church, lived a life of sin in a public way, maybe even publicly criticized the church on social media or something, maybe hurt you personally, But now God is doing something in their hearts and they are returning to the Lord and to his church. It would be so easy to say, but this person has attacked the church. I'm thinking the Apostle Paul wouldn't have even been accepted. 
Or we can't let him return until we see more evidence of repentance. Of course, it's wise to look for fruit of repentance. But we must be quick to receive repentant sinners with joy, with delight, just as Christ does. Beloved, this morning we've heard two very important points that are at the very heart of the gospel. First, no matter how far we fall, God will joyfully accept us when we turn to Him. And second, no matter how far others have fallen, we should accept them with God's own joy as they turn to Him. May we experience God's great love for us and remember it day by day to strengthen us in our walk with Him. And then may we model the love of God by receiving and accepting broken sinners just like us and all around us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this good news, this gospel that is so different, so above anything any human being could make up, so far above any other doctrines and philosophies and teachings that any, any other religion could teach, so unique in that Jesus, the Son of God, does the work and we get to rest in Him. Lord, help us now respond with joy and praise and worship and singing and obedience and ongoing faith and repentance day by day because you are so good and this is all so good. In Jesus' name, amen.